0: storm is threatening my very life today. If I don't get some shelter, oh yeah, I'm going to fade away. Ooh, see the fire is sweeping our very street today. Burns like red coal carpet. Mad bull lost its way. Give me shelter. Give me shelter. Give me shelter. You got it? So wrote, so sang Messrs. Jagger and Richards in 1969. It doesn't matter how tough you are. It doesn't matter. Everybody needs shelter. Everybody needs a place of protection. Everybody needs refuge at some point. Caleb needed the Lord to be his shelter, needed the Lord to be his strength and he was fighting for a home. Within the land that God had given, he was fighting for a particular place that would be shelter, not only for himself, but for his family as well. The theme that runs through scripture were the first words as we began our worship service today. God is our refuge and our strength, a very present help in trouble our helper he amid the flood of mortal ills prevailing. Refugees, people who are fleeing from something or from someone, perhaps they understand more poignantly and more clearly at any particular moment of time the need of shelter, but it doesn't matter who you are, it doesn't matter whether or not you are an actual refugee, everybody needs shelter. So here's what I'm going to look at today from the passage that we've got before us. And admittedly, it's a, it's a little bit of a detailed passage. We're going to look at God's justice in this passage, and then God's provision of refuge that is outlined here, and then we're going to look at God's mercy together. I probably need to say, as well, that there are two things that are very much contemporary issues uh, facing the world, facing our nation today. One is the idea of sanctuary cities. Uh, The other is, of course, the worldwide refugee crisis that exists, and while both of those things are significant issues, they're not the first thing that's the object of concern here. There may be principles that extend to those things, but even though people try to make connections between so-called sanctuary cities and cities of refuge, they're actually very different things. There's a there's the name sounds similar, there's attempts to connect the two of them, but they're different things. So I'm not really going to talk about those two things today. What then, looking at the passage, do we see of God's justice in this passage? I want to make two points that relate to God's justice and the order of the two points that I want to set forth here about God's justice is important. It is significant. First, The justice that we see in this passage is built on the foundation of the dignity and the sanctity of human life. Humanity has amongst things that are living, amongst things that are living, humanity has a unique dignity, a unique sanctity because we are made in the image of God. I'm indebted to uh, Francis Schaeffer for some of the things I'm about to read that are are quotes from Schaeffer for you. He's got a book on Joshua. It's it's hard to call it a commentary. Uh, Frankly, it's not a great book. Uh, but, But this chapter was a great chapter, and I really appreciated some of his insights. Schaeffer writes this. The moral law is rooted in the fact of the existence and the character of God. It has validity because God is there. So the moral law, thou shalt not kill. That is rooted in who God is and the character of God and the fact that God is there. Israel's civil law is also based on this reality. So. How Israel is to apply these particular moral laws in her situation as a theocratic state is rooted in that reality as well. Human worth rests on the fact that man is unique. He is made in the image of God. Because God exists and because he has a character, we live in a true moral universe murder breaks the law of the universe, murder destabilizes the earth, the land where God dwells. Balance is lost when someone is killed because the dignity and the sanctity of life have been destroyed. There's not just validity to human life, there's not just sanctity or dignity to human life, because of a social contract. It's not just because men have decided, you know what, this is the best way that we should live together, and therefore we, we put upon ourselves these responsibilities. It is because, and particularly for Israel, but it is because we live in a moral universe with a God that has created that universe and laws according to his character. So when a moral life, when a, when a life is destroyed, This upsets that creation, and therefore you have these kind of statements, like in Genesis chapter 9. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. There's a uniqueness there. There's a reflection of the image-bearing nature that we have. That means if you kill someone, by man's hand your blood is required of you. Listen to this passage. Numbers 35 is one of the places where the cities of refuge are also described. And listen to this passage the way it talks about this balance. If anyone kills a person, the murderer shall be put to death on the evidence of witnesses, but no person shall be put to death on the testimony of one witness. Moreover, you shall accept no ransom for the life of a murderer who is guilty of death but he shall be put to death, guilty of death, but he shall be put to death. And you shall accept no ransom for him who has fled to his city of refuge that he may return to dwell in the land before the death of the high priest. Life for life, blood for blood. And you'll note as as you listen to a passage like that, that there's no ransom. In other words, you can't change this. You can't pay a fine. You can't pay money into a pot, into a system that allows you to change this sentence. You can't do that if you're a murderer, and you can't do that even if you're a manslayer, is what our passage calls it here, guilty of manslaughter. You can't pay to end this, and that's different, apparently, than other crimes, because this is a life, and that sanctity of life is significant, as you, uh, as you consider the worth of a single individual so justice is rooted in the dignity of human life and we have that dignity of human life because of our image bearing status that's the first point under justice the second is this therefore because that is true the innocent innocent should be protected and the guilty should be punished now that seems rather clear to us but it is a statement that relates to the justice of god there is such a thing as guilt, and it's real. It is not just a feeling. Guilt is not just a psychological disorder that we have. It is not just the hangover from a previous generation. There is actual moral guilt. Schaefer again. This means a murderer has true moral guilt before God, and this guilt must be taken seriously not because of a social contract, but because of God. When I sin, I am actually morally guilty. I may feel guilty, I may be troubled by it for a long time, but I am actually guilty in addition to feeling guilty. And while the guilty must be punished at the exact same time, as is clear in this passage, the innocent must be protected. Because if you kill an innocent person, you've upset the balance again in the opposite direction than you intended to do. The balance is thrown off. And that leads us from justice, then, to God's provision of refuge. Because the particular focus of the cities of refuge and the particular focus of the Joshua passage that we just read is how do you protect the innocent? in a situation as we're going to look at in a couple of examples here in just a moment. How do you protect the innocent? First of all, God protects the innocent through the establishment of these cities of refuge. So if you think of Israel for a moment, just running along the coast of the Mediterranean and divided by the Jordan River, you've got six cities that were to be designated these cities of refuge and they are evenly spaced on each side of the river. So you've got one, two, and three, or or six of them together, running on either side of the river. The idea was that you would have quick, clear access to a city of refuge no matter where you lived in Israel. In fact, uh, both in scripture and in some of the extra biblical literature that exists, the way to these cities had to be clearly marked and the roads had to be maintained in a unique and a good way that would allow you, if you were fleeing from someone who was pursuing your life, the avenger of blood, you could get to that city quickly and find refuge in that particular city. Now, I think this idea is clear enough to us without exploring all of the possible variants that could exist. All of us understand that there are many variants and variables in this equation. These are set up in a kind of binary way as they are presented to us, one or the other, you're either innocent or guilty. We all know, okay, and we live in a culture where, where one might explore, wait a minute, exactly, exactly what's your level of guilt or responsibility or culpability within either of these things. But the idea here, is if you kill someone accidentally without, and the phrase goes, without malice aforethought, right? Without malice aforethought, you run to a city where you find protection. That's how God is providing refuge. There's an example of this in Deuteronomy chapter 19, and I'll just read to you. Deuteronomy 19 is another passage uh, wherein these cities are described. And here's the example. As when someone goes into the forest with his neighbor to cut wood, and his hand swings the axe to cut down a tree, and the head slips from the handle and strikes his neighbor so that he dies, he may flee to one of these cities and live, lest the avenger of blood in hot anger pursue the manslayer and overtake him because the way is long and strike him fatally, though the man did not deserve to die since he had not hated his brother in the past." Now we get, in our culture, we'd like to ask questions about the manufacturer of the ax. Who made the head? Did they do a good job of securing the heads? Uh, and who, who's responsible for this? Was, it, was this guy known to be somebody who was just careless with his ax swinging? Or careless with his care of his equipment that he had? That put aside for a moment, the illustration helps to see plainly what we're talking about here. If you accidentally slay somebody, if you didn't have hatred in your heart, for this person, then you run to the city. That's how God provides protection. Secondly, God provides refuge, not only through these cities, but also through systems that are attached to these cities. We are are accustomed in our culture to thinking of the system, and that's always a negative thing. As soon as you say, it's the system, you mean that that it's, it's bad in and of itself. Probably beyond repair, the system is. And yet, scripture doesn't treat systems in that way. Clearly, systems can become problematic. But it doesn't just say, okay, no systems is the way to go. Everybody live as you please. God establishes within the cities a system for how this entire thing works. So let's articulate a few of these because this is part of how God protects the culture as a whole. Now, the first one, the system, is this idea of the avenger of blood. So you've heard me read that in several of these passages. The avenger of blood, that's a very dramatic phrase. I mean, it, and it's as dramatic in the original as we should hear it as well. The state in Israel did not put people to death. So the state didn't do that as the state. The system was that the person who, and this is, appears to be what this is, the nearest male relative of the person who was killed That person is the avenger of blood. And it becomes their responsibility to execute justice, that is, to kill the murderer. This is part of God's system. It is part of the way God balances things. Not everybody can do it. You can't just run out on your own and do it. You have to be identified as that particular person, and then it is your responsibility to restore the balance by executing the adjust, the justice. All right, secondly, another part of the system is the provision of the trial system, the provision of the courts that existed here before the elders and before the representatives of the city, of the city of refuge. You had to have the case explained. You had to have witnesses called and it had to be clear that it's not just one witness. It had to be a collection of witnesses, at least two, to determine the guilt. And you had to have an examination of the circumstances, an examination of the motives. You had to talk about the relationship that these people had. You had to discern, was there, was there prior hatred? Was there a, a motive that existed behind this killing? And it's, it's clear here that God cares about the reasons of the heart, that it's not just the act in and of itself, but he cares about what's going on inside of us, a third part of the system, where the sentences that were stipulated by God. Let me read for you again from Deuteronomy chapter 19 for the clarity of this sentence. But if anyone hates his neighbor, and lies in wait for him and attacks him and strikes him fatally so that he dies and he flees into one of these cities, then the elders of his city shall send and take him from there and hand him over to the avenger of blood so that he may die. Your eye shall not pity him, but you shall purge the guilt of innocent blood from Israel so that it may be well for you. So for the murderer, this is the justice of God. You have the trial. You determine the guilt. This person, if they have fled to the city of refuge, and if they are actually guilty of murder, you take him outside, and you give him to the avenger of blood, who is to put him to death, and you shall show no pity. You shall not weep for that person in that circumstance. I want to say one thing here uh, because, of course, we're talking about capital punishment, and we all know that that's a, a, a question that comes up all the time in our society. I want to warn you about one thing. One should be very careful about taking Israel's civil law and making a direct correlation and application of sentences to our day and age. Okay? That doesn't always work. This is a theocratic state. It is a unique place, and they are a unique people in their constitution by God. So as much as you might like to say, hey, this means there automatically should be capital punishment, you probably shouldn't go right to a text like this to say automatically there should be capital punishment. Now, there are other places in Scripture, for example, the Genesis chapter 9 one that I read, and there are reasons that are embedded in these that are given here for capital punishment that actually are pretty significant for an argument for capital punishment. But some of those, like especially the Genesis chapter nine one, exist prior to the Mosaic law and are pointed to as the foundation for this particular part of the Mosaic law. So all I'm saying here is you gotta work your way through those arguments. Sometimes we can go quickly to Israelite civil law and apply that immediately. You You gotta work for principles behind it because it won't always work. So be careful with that, Um, but nevertheless, you can see the principles there and see why God says you should kill those who are murderers. Okay, so that's for the murderer. For someone who is innocent of murder, the manslayer, they nevertheless have to go to this city of refuge and not only do they have to go to the city of refuge and have the trial, but what is kind of interesting is they are required to stay in the city of refuge. So they're not guilty of murder. It was an accident, okay? In whatever way, shape, form it took place, the death of this person was an accident. They're not allowed to leave that city of refuge for a time. The time stipulated is the death of the current high priest. Until that time, this person has to stay there. So it is a refuge, it is a city of refuge, But it it kind of at the same time is an exile because they're not home. They don't get to go home until the death of the high priest. Now, you kind of look at that and go, okay, why? What's, What's the reasoning that is behind that? Well, on the one hand, you can say maybe it's as simple as, you know, letting a person cool down, letting things, letting time, ease the anger that is out there and perhaps that's a part of it we can see that in one of those descriptions that i read earlier that you want to be careful of hot anger that exists that might make you do something without process so you want to be careful of that okay that may be part of it but there there seems to be a little bit more going on here with this idea it seems like and this is a phrase used by many that israel is kind of living out a parable here that there are lessons embedded in the way that all of this takes place. So for example, one of the lessons would be this, life is always sacred. Even if the life was taken accidentally, it was still a taken life. Someone died and because life is sacred, we've gotta let some atonement take place. We've gotta let blood be shed, in this case, the death of the high priest, before you go back out and live in that same place. Atonement is connected to blood. It's connected to God. It's connected to being, you're not just in any city, you're in a Levitical city. And it's not just any person who needs to die. It's actually the current high priest who needs to die to mark your ability to leave that city if you're the one who was guilty of manslaughter and go back to your hometown. It seems to illustrate this idea of a substitute, of a priestly substitute. The death of the high priest is able to atone for the death of the person and allows you, guilty of manslaughter, to at that point go out and rejoin your home and rejoin your family. There seems to be a substitutionary atonement that is taking place here. So thus far, here's what we've got, God's justice. God's justice is founded on the dignity and the sanctity of human life and the image-bearing status that is given to us. That means you should punish the guilty and protect the innocent. And then you've got the provision of refuge. You've got the provision of refuge in the cities that God provides and in the systems that God provides. And finally, as we close today, what I want us to consider is God's mercy or God's expansive mercy by looking at this text and then by looking just a little bit beyond it as well. The first thing that we see of God's expansive mercy is actually found in the last verse of the chapter, and and it's this simple phrase. These were the cities of refuge designated for all of the people of Israel That's fine. And for the stranger sojourning among them. That's pretty expansive. Think about the book of Joshua. Think about the the commands that have gone on in Joshua, the violence of the book of Joshua as God judges those nations. And yet here God says this justice that I am establishing, this refuge that I am establishing applies not only to you, but it applies to those who are sojourning in your midst the stranger as well that's pretty remarkable I think that's pretty magnanimous that God would extend mercy to include others as well in this process so we get there the first hint of the expansion of what God is going to do by providing refuge for the nations in the future the next thing that I want to look at in terms of 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 the expanding mercy of God is going to have to be looking at this text but looking beyond this text. So you look at a text like this, Joshua chapter 20, and you feel like, okay, God is just. God con- has concern for the heart of what's going on. He considers the circumstances. We will all be judged at some point, but God is a good, a righteous, and a fair judge. Well, okay. All right, so so far, so good. Cities of refuge are, are set up for the innocent. They're not set up for the guilty. Cities of refuge are a refuge for those who actually didn't commit murder. And so you feel like, okay, God's a good judge. There's a place for the innocent to go. But it begs a question that I hope you're asking, what about the guilty? What, what about the guilty? Now, we've, we've got the horizon here. We read about the guilty in this context. But what about those? What, what about all who are guilty before the holiness, the justice, the righteousness of God. What do we say about that? Because here's the reality. Biblically speaking, we seem to be held accountable for three things. Number one, we are held accountable to Adam's sin. Adam's sin is part of our original sin. Adam's guilt is our guilt as well. Adam's sin was perhaps not actual murder, but Adam's sin caused death to enter the world. Secondly, and I don't have time to preach this right now, um, so I'm, I'm not going to. I'm just going to say it quickly because we've talked about it before. Who's responsible for the death of Christ? And the answer is not just Jews, and it's not just Romans. We all, collectively, sinners shouted, crucify him. Crucify that man. There is a responsibility that we have for the death of Christ. And then I'm sure the other passage that is in many of your minds right now, Matthew 5, the Sermon on the Mount, 521, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. That's what we've been talking about. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. Now, we don't want to flatten all things. Murder is a hideous and heinous sin, and yet, in reality, Scripture also says to us, you are also guilty. If you come before the tribunal of God and you stand there and think, I have found refuge before the tribunal of God because he'll explore the motives of my heart and I'll be okay, we're mistaken, right? We're mistaken. Is there refuge for those who are actually guilty? What if I flee? a place of refuge and I find judgment there. I'm killed there anyway because I am morally guilty. Cities of refuge seem to point to somewhere beyond them and that is picked up I think by the writer of Hebrews in the passage that was our New Testament reading. You've got two unchangeable things. God and his character, God and his oath. Those things are unchangeable and therefore the writer of Hebrews says, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place beyond the curtain. Why? Why do we have it? Because the high priest has gone there. Because the high priest has entered into that city and the high priest has died. The blood of the high priest has been shed. Shed not for the innocent. Shed for the guilty. Shed for the enemies. Shed for sinners. The, uh, the song that we sang earlier, what more can he say than to you he hath said, to you who for refuge to Jesus have fled? In Jesus, the steadfast love and faithfulness of God meet, and righteousness and peace kiss one another. From the Psalms. Justice and mercy find their resolution in Jesus Christ. Justice, and this is what we, we read in our confession of faith earlier from the Belgic, justice has been exercised towards the Son that mercy might be poured out upon us. Someone had to die for your guilt, for my guilt, of being murderers, at least murderers in our heart. Morally guilty, morally culpable. Someone has to die. Blood has to pay for that, and blood has paid for it. So go to him, Schaefer in that the the existential moment for us of entering into a city of refuge is when we turn in faith to Jesus Christ, and sorry to go back to this, but to provide the inclusio and say, give me shelter, I need shelter, I need a safe place, I need a refuge. As a guilty person, the city is available, the way is clear the gates to that city, the gates to Jesus Christ are not locked. Jesus said, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Jesus, we thank you that you have become our high tower and our refuge. We, in coming to you, deserved to be cast out. For we came with guilt. We didn't come as someone guilty of manslaughter, but of people who are guilty of murder. And yet you will not cast us out because you have died in our place. We thank you for taking the sentence that was due to us, the death penalty, that we might live with you. We pray that you would help us to rejoice in that, help us to hope in that, Help those who are here who have not cried out to you, who have not sought refuge in you, to seek it, to seek it by faith and trust in you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.